Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll climb the tallest lighthouse in Florida at Ponce Inlet Light Station. It's probably the most complete, restored light station in the United States. William Jennings Bryan successfully argued against teaching evolution in public schools at the Scopes trial in 1925. He gave his last speech in South Florida. When you read it and you find out he gave the speech like a month before he died. And nobody's quite sure how it ended up here or why it's in this particular spot. We'll talk with two of Florida's last trot line fishermen. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. There are people who go up and find they can't come down. Bob Callister is programs manager at the Ponce Inlet Light Station. We have to talk them down. Some people come down backwards on the stairway. Some come down in the seat of their pants, all the way down the 203 steps. It's quite a sight to see. But most people really, really, really enjoy once they get up to the top and, and feel the, uh, the cool air and, the, and see the beautiful view. They get a much better idea as far as what life was like back 125 years ago, or even today for that matter. Uh, the, uh, the area around the lighthouse has changed so much from the pictures we have of years ago um, where there was no building at all. The light station at Ponce de Leon Inlet, popularly known as Ponce Inlet, is home to a red brick lighthouse that is 175 feet tall. From the top of the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse, you get a spectacular view of the Atlantic Ocean, Ponce Inlet, the Halifax River running north, and the Indian River running south. On a clear day, you can see all the way to Cape Canaveral from this lighthouse, just south of Daytona Beach. As Bob Callister explains, the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse was completed in 1887. It's the tallest lighthouse in Florida. Uh, it's probably the most complete, restored light station in the United States. Uh, we have had a lot of people here over the years that have commented how, how beautifully the buildings are restored, how beautiful the grounds are kept, and that wasn't by any accident. They, the uh, Preservation Association was formed in 1972 and uh, has put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into making this the way it is today. The Ponce Inlet Light Station was named a National Historic Landmark in 1998. There are eight original 1887 buildings at the light station, including the lighthouse. Three lighthouse keepers' houses are now home to exhibits and displays focusing on local history and demonstrating what life was like in Florida in the 1800s. John Mann is a tour guide at the Ponce Inlet Light Station. He tells us that the first lighthouse keeper here was a Russian immigrant named William Rolinsky. Rolinsky was a Confederate uh, war veteran. And I always found that to be fascinating because uh, usually after uh, the uh, uh, war between the states, that uh, Union veterans were appointed. Uh, we have no idea what um, Mr. Relinsky's uh, uh, connections were, 
uh, with the federal government. Uh, but uh, I always found that to be uh, very, very interesting and very unique. Yeah, but he was actually the uh, first keeper, the first principal keeper. He had two assistant uh, keepers, and he is credited with lighting the light uh, the first time, November 1st, 1887. When the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse was put into operation in 1887, its beam of light could be seen 20 miles out to sea. As John Mann and Bob Callister explain, when William Rolinski left the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse in 1893, his successor was an Irishman named Thomas Patrick O'Hagan. Mr. O'Hagan um, is probably responsible for more lighthouse keepers in the state of Florida than any other individual. I, uh, I believe at last count... Uh, Mr. O'Hagan had 11 children. Uh, many of his sons, I think three, became keepers themselves, uh, probably by serving uh, uh, unofficial apprenticeship, uh, apprenticeships uh, with, his, uh, uh, with their father. And uh, actually, uh, one of uh, Mr. O'Hagan's relatives, I believe his granddaughter, is now the head of the Amelia Island Lighthouse Foundation up uh, Fernandina Beach, Amelia Island. Uh, and she indeed was born at Amelia Island Light Station. I think he was the keeper. I think his son there was the assistant keeper when she was born. She and her husband run the foundation, do tours up at Amelia Island. Yeah, fascinating story. We also know that one of his sons was the, um, was the relief keeper here at the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse, uh, after the uh, the uh, tower was electrified in 1933, and they were cutting back because they didn't need as many keepers with the electricity, and uh, he was uh, assigned here as one of the relief keepers uh, during that period of time. We don't know how long he was here, but he was here for a short period of time at least. Yeah, you, you will find the O'Hagan name uh, at St. Augustine, you'll find the O'Hagan name as uh, on the list of keepers at uh, Cape Canaveral, I believe also at Jupiter. So it's fascinating, uh, fascinating family, a, a real lighthouse uh, service family. It was during Thomas Patrick O'Hagan's tenure as principal lighthouse keeper that a ship called the Commodore sunk off of Daytona Beach in 1897. One of the passengers on the Commodore was author Stephen Crane, best known for his novel The Red Badge of Courage. Crane wrote an article about his experience of being shipwrecked, and it also inspired his short story, The Open Boat. John Mann. Mr. O'Hagan never actually met Mr. Crane because, of course, Mr. Crane uh, uh, and his infamous dinghy uh, wrecked about uh, nine miles north of the lighthouse itself. But uh, the morning prior to Mr. Crane coming ashore, ingloriously as that was with the uh, with the dinghy uh, uh, going over in the uh, in the breakers uh, the first boatload of survivors from the uh, commodore uh, did come ashore here about a, a mile north of here uh, 12 uh, cuban uh, rep, uh, rebels actually they were part of the uh, the insurrection uh, uh, in uh, uh, in cuba at that time and they uh, walked to the lighthouse um, they were given aid by keeper o'hagan and uh, the other assistant keepers and, and Keeper O'Hagan's uh, family uh, went to New Smyrna, caught the train back to Jacksonville, and never told anyone else because of the clandestine nature of uh, their activity 
that there were other people in lifeboats out there. A uh, second load of uh, 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 Cuban uh, rebels uh, landed about three miles north of the first boatload, and they indeed uh, never uh, told anyone that uh, Crane, uh, the captain, the oiler, and the cook were still out there uh, in the water. John Mann often portrays Edward Murphy, the captain of the Commodore, for students and tour groups. One of the newer buildings at the Ponce Inlet Light Station is the Lens Exhibit Building, which houses a collection of restored lighthouse lenses. Bob Callister. Uh, before the light was electrified, they used kerosene to light the lamp. Uh, this lighthouse was built after the days of whale oil being used, and uh, kerosene was first used in the Civil War, I believe. And... Uh, but in 1887, they used that was the uh, the fuel of choice, so to speak, of the lighthouse service, and they built the uh, this particular lighthouse in order to use a, uh, a first order Fresnel lens, which is essentially the biggest of the six orders of Fresnel lenses. Um, they had a a five concentric wick uh, lantern. A kerosene lantern, which we have on display over in the Lens Museum, and um, they would light that every night. They used five gallons of kerosene that they had to carry up, it weighed about 40 pounds. They had to carry that kerosene up the steps, all 203 steps, um, in order to um, to have enough fuel on hand to keep the light lit all night. It's very, very important that the light be lit all night. Now, because we had, or I should say the Pontinent Lighthouse had a fixed lens, there was no rotation necessary, therefore there was no clockwork necessary to keep the lens going around and around as the Cape Canaveral Lighthouse did uh, before it was electrified in 1931. Yeah, fixed lens, as uh, Mr. Callister uh, r refers to it, means that um, its signal at night was a steady beam of light, which uh, translated six miles out would be a, uh, a single beam of white light, an intense beam of, of white light. Uh, characteristics uh, of uh, nighttime characteristics are flashes or a fixed lens. Uh, this our first first order lens, the, the, the initial lens before electrification, uh, was probably removed uh, at the complaint of uh, some ship's captains who began to have trouble discerning the lighthouse light from lights along the beach, perhaps in some of the hotels, the early hotels that were being built, which were all lit and perhaps were confusing the uh, captains. United States Lighthouse Service uh, used a, uh, a replacement lens here that they had up at uh, Sapelo Island in Georgia. Uh, they had uh, closed that uh, station down, and uh, it is indeed a flashing lens. It is the same one that we have up top right now. Well, we're up here in a, a part of the lighthouse where the, the public doesn't usually have access. Uh, explain where we are. We are in the lantern room of the, uh, the Ponsonet Lighthouse. 
We're looking at the third order lens that was uh, installed in 2004, originally installed in 1933, when the tower was electrified. Now, there's a spectacular view from up here. Uh, you were telling me about a, a racetrack that uh, used to be on the beach and uh, uh, used to come around here. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, the racetrack was actually uh, within easy uh, sighting of, of where we are right now. There's a condominium complex uh, three of three uh, units on the, the south turn. It's uh, called Beach Street. And uh, that's where the south turn of the racetrack was. And they would race up the beach, north up the beach. And at the north turn restaurant was where the north turn of the, of the racetrack was. And then they would race down south on the McAdam Road to the south turn. And that's, that was the, uh, the, the, uh, the whole racetrack. That was in the days before NASCAR. Uh, NASCAR track was built in 1959. The last race was held on the beach in 1958. Well, it's a spectacular view up here, but it's a lot cooler just down below where the public can uh, reside. I guess we can go back down there and look around, too. Sounds like a good idea. It's supposed to be 97 up here right now, but I think it's more like 107. <laughs> I think you're right. Until 1929, the Ponce de Leon Inlet was known as Mosquito Inlet, but the new name was deemed more attractive for potential residents. In 1939, the Coast Guard took over operation of the lighthouse, and in 1970, it was decommissioned. In 1980, though, the lighthouse was relit, bringing many more visitors to the historic site. So from 1980 until the present day, the lighthouse has been relit. It currently has its, uh, the original 1933 third-order lens in it. That was uh, taken down probably in the 1970s, early 1970s, was put in storage someplace, was reacquired by the Preservation Association, and restored and reinstalled in the lighthouse in 2004. And at that time, the Coast Guard bid a fond adieu to the Ponce the Lighthouse and uh, turned the, uh, the maintenance of the, the, the um, um, tower over to the maintenance department here on, at the, um, the Ponce the Lighthouse. So we are now a privately owned aid to navigation uh, I'm sure there's many, many more in the United States, but that makes us uh, very proud to, to know that we jumped through enough hoops to, that the Coast Guard allowed us to maintain the light. And it is still an active aid to navigation even today. Today, the Ponce Inlet Light Station is also a valuable educational resource. Several thousand students visit the lighthouse annually, and classroom outreach programs reach thousands more. The Ponce Inlet Light Station is open daily from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. and stays open until 9 p.m. during the summer. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great Florida books, listen to archived editions of this program, and become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org.
William Jennings Bryan successfully argued against teaching evolution in public schools at the Scopes trial in 1925. As Janie Gould reports, an historic marker indicates that Bryan gave his last speech in Vero Beach. Hibiscus honey is a multicolored statue of a sea turtle. Blues and pinks and greens. And next to that is what looks a little bit like a tombstone. is a historic marker in memory of William Jennings Bryan, the great commoner. This marker commemorated a speech that he made here back in 1925 on the occasion of the creation of Indian River County. Yep. And this marker is outside the Heritage Center in Vero Beach. Rebecca Rickey is executive director. She's been here almost five years. Mm -hmm. How often do people ask about this marker? They do not ask at all. I don't think most people even know that it's sitting here. Do you ever see people standing around it reading about Brian? There will be people that will stop and read it, but honestly, most of the time if you look out here, it's, it's kids from the playground next door and they want to have their picture taken with hibiscus honey. You know, I never see anybody read this, and it's too bad because it's really interesting. When you read it and you find out he gave the speech like a month before he died, and nobody's quite sure how it ended up here or why it's in this particular spot. Because he gave the speech at a park that was called Liberty Park that's long gone. Right. It's the next block on 14th Avenue. It's basically where the 14th Avenue Steakhouse is standing right now. Have you heard ever anything about why he came to Vero or who he knew here? No, I've never heard any stories about it at all. In fact, I think I'd probably been here a year before I actually walked out and read this and went, oh my God, <laughs> William Jennings Bryan was here. I'm a big fan of Theodore Roosevelt. You know, Same era. Yeah. He ran against McKinley twice and then um, against Roosevelt's handpicked, you know, William Howard Taft. And then he moved to Miami during the land boom and helped promote Coral Gables. I did find that out yeah. through my handy internet sources. After he spoke here or down the street, he uh, went to Tennessee, I believe, which is where the Scopes trial was to take place. And he did the trial, and then just a few days after the trial, he died. Apparently, Brian's ties with Vero Beach, if any, are lost to history. Michael Blaney, a retired history professor at the University of Illinois, has done research on Brian's Florida period. Brian began coming down to Florida in 1912 because of his wife's arthritis. They liked Florida so much that he decided to become a permanent resident of Miami. A man named George Merrick, who was the developer of Coral Gables, paid Brian the winter of 1925 $100,000 to make speeches promoting Florida real estate, in the Miami area in particular. He also made a lot of speeches in other communities, among them Vero Beach. Promoting real estate and... Not just real estate, but also Florida has a great future. Florida is a land of unlimited possibilities. Brian wanted Miami and Florida to be a place where ordinary people, the common man, could come. Because, of uh, course, he was the great commoner by nickname. Right. Are you surprised that there's a marker to him in Vero Beach? I'm not at all surprised because the people of Florida had uh, a great affection for him. I think what it might have been was his last speech in Florida, when it says his last speech was there in Vero Beach. Because which, he went on to the famous monkey trial in Tennessee, and he prosecuted the teacher who was accused of teaching exactly. evolution. You tell us that he filed a bill in Florida. He lobbied for the Florida state legislature to pass an anti-evolution law. Did the legislature do that? They did it after his death. A lot of legislators were embarrassed about this. They liked Brian, but to pass a law against evolution, well, they didn't want to go that far. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. I'm a monkey! I'm a monkey!
This is Florida Frontiers. As early as the 18th century, settlers began migrating to Florida from other parts of the South. People of Celtic heritage who came here from the Carolinas, Georgia, and Alabama were often referred to as crackers. Most live off the land from subsistence farming and free-ranging cattle. Others found ways to harvest the bounty of Florida's rivers and lakes. Bill Dudley talks to two North Florida fishermen who may be among the last to practice their traditional occupation. You got to be born into it. If you ain't born into it, you ain't going to make it. That's Henry Buck Castles of Loch Lusa, a rural community southeast of Gainesville. Five days a week, starting in late afternoon, Buck and his son Wayne head out across Loch Lusa Lake, laying out trot lines for catfish. Each line contains 700 hooks, evenly spaced over some 2,100 feet. They return before sunrise to pull in the trot lines, removing and later cleaning their fish. Once, many rural Floridians made their livings fishing this way. Today, there's only a handful of trot line fishermen in the state. They're carrying on a tradition that stretches back well over a century in Florida, according to Wayne Castles. I graduated in 73. That's when I started. But I've been doing it before that. I mean, Daddy, he's done it for 80 years, and his daddy done it before that. So we've been here for over 100 years right now. Trotline catfishing was a really important part of cracker life, a major source of income and sustenance for crackers in this region, certainly in the early part of the 20th century and probably before that. Buck Castles, who is 80 years old, that's all he's ever done is catfish. Bob Stone is outreach coordinator for the Florida Folklife Program and state folklorist. We're quite sure that the castles are the last two trotline cat fishermen in Alachua County, and maybe even beyond that. There certainly aren't many left, and it, it gives us a real insight into how, for one thing, how important these lakes are. At the Folklife area of the 2010 Florida Folk Festival, the castles talk to visitors about their livelihood, displaying the tools of their trade, including a multi-layered wooden frame that allows the 2,100-foot fishing line to be racked so that bait can be more quickly attached to each of the 700 hooks before returning the line to the water. When not setting out or pulling in the lines, a fisherman may be found wading waist-deep in shallow flats, netting small grass shrimp for bait. Today, however, small pieces of aluminum foil are baiting the hooks on display. Sometimes they bite aluminum foil, sometimes they bite grass shrimp. Every now and then you try something different. If you won't be catching nothing, you just try a different bait and it'll work. Buck Castles can remember before any of these modern techniques were invented. In his day, the line with its hooks was paid out from a large metal bowl. You put the line out and left it in the lake and bait it out there. Didn't know about these racks or not. You just let anchor each end down, you pick it up, had a jug, you pick it up and go down it and put a piece of bait on that hook, pull the boat up to the next one, put a piece of bait on, and, and didn't take it out. And used cotton lines, and about a month and a half, you had to buy more. It'd rot out. But he didn't fish but about four or 500 hooks when he was a long time ago because they didn't have no way. You know what I mean? They just they'd do it real slow. When he started, they paddled all the way across lakes. He said they build huts across the lake and spend the night, then paddle back. Back then they used minnows and cut bait, but then somebody come in there and baited with some shrimp, and they really caught the fish. And since then they baited with shrimp. A retired wildlife officer with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, Lee Cruz, is a lifelong friend. I've known Wayne when he was in diapers. I've been knowing Buck probably 50 years. 
my new buck's daddy. He says that like other forms of commercial fishing, laying trot lines is no job for a lazy man. Let me tell you something. When I first went to work with the state of Florida, I thought they were lazy, sorry, no good people. But one day I found an illegal trot line, and it was about two miles long. So I had to pull it because it was illegal. So I started pulling that thing, and about four hours later, and my hands was cut up and my arms was cut up from them hooks, I changed my opinion on them people. They're hard working. That was the hardest thing I've done in many a year, pull that trot line. And I had a, a great respect for them after that. And the whole family gets involved with this fishing operation. The men will put the lines out, the men will come in and clean the fish, and the women will rack the lines back up and bait them while the men take a nap. So the whole family gets involved, the children and everybody. And Wayne was doing it. When, when he could walk, he was baiting trot lines. We come in, we walk in the house, and maybe eat breakfast, and we'll right back out and go to cleaning. Five days a week. The hooks and line these fishermen use can catch catfish up to 25 pounds, but the average is a pound or less. Most are sold out of state. That seems unfortunate because the castles say anyone who eats one of these wild-caught fish won't want to go back to the farm-raised variety sold in restaurants and supermarkets. They, most people don't even know what they are. A lot of people I know don't even, I had never eat one. Yeah. Then they'll eat one and say, that boy of mine, he took some of them one day down and selling them. And the man come back and said, I ain't never had nothing that good. Yeah. He come back and said, I need five more pounds of them. He said, that's the best fish I ever had. Commercial uh, pond-raised or farm-raised catfish that's been the economic pressure that's made it so hard for trot line cat fishermen and basically, for the most part, put them out of business. Like Wayne is in his 50s now. He says his kids aren't going into this. The young ones now just, they ain't going to do it. That's too much work. They ain't know where to sell the fish. They ain't no fish ones, really. So pond raised, they got it. Restaurants and all, they can order 100 pounds, 200 pounds, ready to put in the pan. And these we got ain't like that. He remembers the prices paid for catfish in the days when he was a young man just starting out. Now we got 16 cents a pound. When I got married, I was getting 16 cents. We caught 100 pounds, we had $16. But you could buy Coca Cola for a nickel. A loaf of bread was 12 cents. Liar light bill run about $7. And he's proud of having been a hard worker and a good provider. Raised three young'uns, never was broke in my life. Didn't have to borrow in their damn penny. Didn't ask nobody for nothing. Although Buck and Wayne Castle still manage to make a living, the price they get for their fish hasn't kept up with their cost of doing business, especially the rising cost of fuel. If I go all fishing, it costs me $75, $80 a day to fish. I got to catch a bunch or you can't make it. And with none of the younger generation starting in the trot line business, Wayne Castle's worries he and his dad may be the last bearers of this long Florida tradition. I guess it just, just ain't going to be none of it here in, I say, 15 years, it'll probably be extinct. You just don't sell that much and you don't make that much money. And it's a hard life. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Bill Dudley. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week. Until then, you can follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and visit our website at MyFloridaHistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.